This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to Around the Dial, your one-stop shop for sports talk's best moments every day. Here's your host, CBS Sports Radio's Damon Amendolara. Welcome inside Around the Dial, the best in your sports talk. For Tuesday, June the 4th, I'm your host, D.A. Tomorrow night, we've got game number three of the NBA Finals. But questionable is sharpshooter Clay Thompson. He pulled his hamstring in game number two, couldn't finish the game. There was optimism that he would be able to play in game three, and of course, there still is. But what happens if Clay Thompson can't go for game three? And it doesn't seem likely that KD would be able to go for Game 3 as well. So we've got a banged-up Golden State Warriors team coming back home, 1-1 series split. Let's begin in the Bay Area with Joe Lowe and Dibs at 95-7 of the game in San Francisco. Can we expect Clay to come back and play in Game number 3? It's going to be tough for Clay Thompson to get out there and play and be effective. To me, the bigger thing is, what is the, if he does play... What is that really saying? How big this game is that you're willing to further strain his hamstring and not give him a couple more days till Friday? Can you risk that? You can risk it because he hasn't missed a playoff game yet. He started all 120 of the playoff games in his time with Golden State, and that goes back to the Mark Jackson days. So to me, if the pain can be tolerated, he'll be out there. And he already basically said, I'm fine, I'm fine, and I know that it takes time to – have the injury set in. You fly all the way back here. The MRI news is good. All eyes on today's practice to see what sort of participation Clay has in practice. We'll get those reports probably by mid-morning. So for me, if he's able to go through practice, he'll be able to go out there and play. Do you remember, and it's not a pleasant story, but do you remember, I believe the year was 2012 when Deepwater Horizon kind of exploded out in the Gulf of Mexico and that oil leaked into the Gulf for about four months? BP ended up, you know, they were responsible for that. All investors had their attention turned to BP the day the uh, U.S. State Department or the Department of Justice was going to hand down their penalty. Everyone was wondering how that was going to impact the business. And when the penalty came down, it ended up being $4 billion over five years. $4 billion over five years was the penalty. There was also $525 million assessed in payments to the SEC, not the Southeastern Conference and Nick Saban. The moral of the story here is that announcement came out that there were $4 billion in penalties coming, and the stock price went up. The stock price went up because they thought it was a slap on the wrist and that the company was going to be in far better shape than anyone anticipated coming off the worst natural disaster, or I should say, you know, man-made disaster in human history. Fast forward to this scenario. Yesterday, we're all awaiting the news on Kevon Looney and Clay Thompson. It comes out that Looney's done, that Thompson's battling a mild hamstring strain, and the point spread goes from Golden State minus 5.5 to Golden State minus 6. You announce the injuries and the point spread goes up in the Warrior favor. More money comes in on the Warriors. 
I can't explain that, but I can tell you the average Joe who doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to betting, he doesn't bet in these scenarios. He waits until maybe 30 minutes or an hour before game time. He's betting Sunday morning before NFL games. The line moving a day, two days before a game takes place, that's generally guys who are in the know. Now, whether or not they're dummying up the line so they can come back for more money the other way on Toronto remains to be seen. But if I see that go from five and a half to six, I'm suddenly not as worried about Clay Thompson's right. hamstring. And, I, and you say those people who are in the know, you don't mean Fresno. You mean actually people who have knowledge, which you may or may not find in the know. If there was a Venn diagram, I'm sure there's some overlap in the middle. Yes, there's people yes. in the know, gambling-wise, left circle. Right circle would be people in Fresno. In the and know. some people in the know are also in the KNOW, they'd be the center of the Venn diagram. Yes, I'd say it's a very, very slivery, oh, very nice. thin overlap there. It's the, but it's yes. the uh, what do they call it, the meniscus on like your eye, that level of... Uh, like last second, never mind, forget about it. We're not going to get into a biology lesson here. No, but I, I think when you look at the news, you kind of knew that Kevon Looney would be out and the impact of him being out is not as significant as Clay Thompson maybe being available. So when the news comes out, you see that Clay just has a mild hamstring strain and you think Clay rightly will probably play. I think he will play. The people in the know, K-N-O-W, <laughs> also see the same thing and that's why the spread goes up because... Ultimately, even if Clay is limited, let's say he's able to go at 70%, he can still be a big-time uh, contributor on the defensive end as he and Andre Iguodala take turns guarding Kawhi Leonard. I think it would be irresponsible to push Clay Thompson back for game number three out of fear that you could lose that game because it's 1-1. If it was 2-0 and you don't want to go down 3-0, I could understand it more, but I would give Clay another three to four days to rest. Don't rush him back for game number three. Make sure he's right for game number four. Because the one thing that kind of hangs over the Clay Thompson and Kevin Durant injuries are their free agencies. They don't want to be rushed back before they're ready and sacrifice their health going into their big paydays. They don't want to rip a hamstring or rip a quad or further damage their bodies before they're supposed to get their big-time money. So I think they've got to be very careful with both. Of course, the Warriors would love to be able to keep both of them as free agents. Maybe that's not quite realistic, but I think that definitely has to be part of the equation. And if I'm the Warriors, I don't worry about pushing Clay back for game number three because if I'm going to get back Kevin Durant anyway in this series at some point in time, I'll wait until minimum we're down 2-1. And hell, if we're up 2-1, I might not bring him back until a game number five. One of the key aspects of the success of the Golden State Warriors has been their selflessness. Just how rare a quality and commodity is that? And how unique is that trait so that GMs look for it? Well, here's Hawks GM Travis Schlenk, who joined John and Hugh, the morning show on 92.9 The Game in Atlanta. The contribution of Andre Iguodala and, and to have a bunch of guys on a team that are as selfless as those guys are. I'm talking about Steph, Clay, and Draymond. How hard is that to find? And is that an attribute that you look for in players when you're, when you're building, trying to build a team like you're trying to build here with Atlanta? Is that like a big attribute for you? Yeah, yeah no question. You know, we, we talk about the character and the individuals or the character of the players all the time, and that's a big part of it. And, you know, that's obviously a big reason for the success they've been able to have, you know, the last five years in Golden State is they have players that are willing to sacrifice their individual statistics for the good of the team. 
you know, when um, when Andre or Steve first came as head coach, you know, Andre had been a starter his whole career, and Steve said, "You're going to be the sixth man now." And you know that that's not an easy thing for a for a proud you know former All Star to hear, but he did it. Um, and you know, obviously, they've had been to the finals five straight years since then. So there's there's a, there's a lot to be said for the character of those guys in the locker room for sure. You, you know, Trav, I know you know we're, we're speculating, but you know, Clay Thompson was a big reason why Golden State hung on in in the, in the first half of that game. If he's out with all the injuries that you you got going on, how? How much does that truly hurt the Golden State Warriors? Well, it's a big blow, especially with Kevin being out. Uh, there's going to be a huge burden on Steph. I thought the Warriors made a, you know, made a great adjustment in the game. Uh, you know, the way Toronto's playing them, they're really forcing, uh, basically saying, "We'll give you twos, but we're not going to give you threes to uh, to Steph uh, and to Clay." But Steph did a great job in Game Two of setting back screens uh, and freeing up cutters to the rim. Um, and it really kept him in the game in the first half. Atlanta Hawks general manager Travis Schlank joining John and Hugh on Sports Radio 92 on the game. Uh, looking ahead to game three of the NBA Finals tomorrow night and more other NBA headlines. Uh, Steve Kerr is something that we talked about, Hugh and I, yesterday, asking the question, and of course you know him extremely well, uh, does Steve Kerr not get the credit for being the kind of coach that, uh, you know, everybody says, oh, you got all this talent, of course anybody could coach it. Do you, does he not get enough credit? Well, I think what... You know, the hardest part about coaching that team is managing all the personalities in the locker room. And I don't think that he gets enough credit for that. You know, there's obviously, as, you, as we all know, there's, there's a lot of great players in there. And that certainly is, you know, a luxury that he has as a coach. But with all those great players comes a lot of personalities and a lot of egos. And, you know, trying to manage all those is not an easy task. So I, I don't think that he gets enough credit for, it. Um, you know, what they've done you know, defensively and offensively, you know, he probably doesn't get enough credit as an X and O coach either. Talking with Travis Schlenk as we get ready for Game 3 of the NBA Finals here uh, between the Warriors and the Raptors, how difficult is it, be, setting aside, you know, the tampering thing with Doc Rivers, how difficult must it be for Toronto, or is it difficult at all, can you kind of put it aside, uh, that, you know, all these rumors that swirl around Kawhi and his future, uh, is, that a, is that a difficult thing to, to kind of put to the side because it becomes such a big talking point, or... In the locker room, are you able to just kind of lock in on what you're doing today? I think when you get to this point of the season, um, I think that they're able to compartmentalize that and put it to the side. You know, they, they've been dealing with those rumors all year long. But at this point, uh, you know, they've got three more wins and they can win an NBA championship. But I, I'm sure that that's the focus of everybody in the organization. Would you ever as a GM want Drake to root for your team? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we've got we've got plenty of our own musicians here in Atlanta that, that, that support us, so uh, we're good on the musical front. Okay, yeah, you could rub your shoulders though, you know. I mean, I'm just sad. <laughs> I just just made the conversation <laughs> creepy, John. Thanks, thanks a lot. I wasn't the one who did that. <laughs> thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> There's a lot of different heroes in this run of five straight NBA Finals for the Warriors, and Andre Iguodala was one of those as the NBA Finals MVP back in year one and then hitting that really clutch shot in game number two to split this series of one game apiece a couple of nights ago. When you think about the dynasties of recent time, whether it is the Miami Heat or the San Antonio Spurs, the Los Angeles Lakers, Chicago Bulls under Michael Jordan, think about some of the role players that hit big shots. John Paxson, Steve Kerr, Robert Ory, Ray Allen. Now Allen's a future Hall of Famer. 
But you have a lot of guys that have hit really big shots when the moment has called for it. And that was Andre Iguodala, and that is a hallmark of a championship team. If the Raptors win game number three, we might feel as though perhaps the Warriors dynasty is on the ropes, just like we have Jeopardy James on the ropes and defeated a librarian named Emma from the University of Chicago defeats a guy that had been on a 33-game run of success, 33 episodes as the winner, one of the most successful Jeopardy contestants ever. But it doesn't mean all is fine in the world of the Jeopardy James. So let's start with this question. Is there a sports equivalent for what James just accomplished? Here's Jamie and Stoney on WXYT 97.1, the ticket in Detroit. To me, the James Holzhauer of modern sports uh, is somebody who was absolutely dominant. People feared playing against him. Don't steal any thunder. I'm not stealing any thunder. And I don't think he changed the game, but was just absolutely dominating. And in some, I thought it was exciting. There were some people who thought it was boring because it was over very quickly when he played. Mike Tyson, from 1990 to 1995. Ooh, Mike like Tyson that. was just, that was it for me. That's, that's what I thought of. Interesting. And when, and when and when he lost, it was a total surprise, kind yes. of out of nowhere, yep. uncharacteristic and, of him. And most of his wins, when he was, you know, he was thirty-seven and zero before losing to Buster Douglas. Most of his wins were either knockouts or TKOs, really quickly. Yeah. And Holzhauer just, you know, early in games, you knew it was over. Right. So, and while he's not Muhammad Ali, he, a lot of people think that if you take Tyson at his best, correct, against Ali at his best, that Tyson might win. Yeah. Interesting. That's I not like a bad that. one. I like that a lot, actually. That makes I, a lot of sense. I'm going with Peyton Manning. I think you could argue he's the greatest ever. I mm-hmm. think you'd lose the argument. But I think it's like he the way he faded at the end, but then he won a Super Bowl. You know, it was all kind of just weird how that ended. Right. But, I, I mean, Manning was boring. He really was. until And now he's showing a little personality because of the commercials and all that stuff. But he was he was a that offense was kind of boring to watch. It was so really? scientific. I enjoyed like, it because it was like all the audibles, yeah. the Omaha's, and all that. I, uh. they, I mean, it wasn't like watching like the old Redskins of '83 or something like that. I mean, yeah, I think Peyton Manning were... looked weird like Holzhauer. That's true. That's true. <laughs> That's a very good point. Uh, all right, let's go to uh, Eric, who probably has the uh, most logical answer to this. Eric and Holly, you're on ninety-seven one. The ticket. Hello, Eric. Hey, good morning, guys. Good morning to uh, you. As soon as, as soon as you mentioned the topic, my head immediately went to Tiger Woods. Uh, you know, Holzhauer, I think many people are widely considering to be the best player, even though he doesn't have the records that Jennings has. Same with Tiger Woods. Um, you know, not probably going to reach the major titles that, that Jack reached, but many consider to be the, the best and most dominant player to ever play the game. So that's immediately where my head went. I thought that was the one that made the most sense. What do you guys think? It's a great, it's a great yes. example. Paul, Sarah, our producer, came up with that one as well. And I think the best comparison is kind of what you said at the end there with the whole thing with Nicholas, right? I mean, it's indisputable that Jack's the greatest ever because he has the record, much like Jennings has the money record and the streak. But I think a lot of people do feel that if Holzhauer were to go head-to-head with Jennings, that Holzhauer would win. You can't prove it, although I'm guessing at some point those two guys will be on the same stage together because Jeopardy loves doing that kind of stuff. But I think it's a great one, Eric. 
Yeah, um, and just the way he kind of changed the way the game was played, like you said, with the daily doubles and how we went about the board, I think, and Tiger sort of did the same thing with golf, with the fitness and everything that he did. So yeah. I saw a lot of a lot of comparisons there. Thanks. Thanks, Nicole. And, and you could even argue that James, like a lot of one of the feelings in golf, we've talked about this, is that the Tiger Woods dominance in the early 2000s happened at a time when all of these kids were kids and they were watching him. And so they've been trained under the Tiger system, like right. Brooks and Spieth and these guys. So they're not phased by Tiger Woods because they've learned that whole mental toughness, again, metal, like you were talking about yesterday. Now we're going to see all these guys from, or females from, or in Jeopardy who might play completely different now. Right, who might be as aggressive as Holzhauer yes. was when it comes to daily doubles. I mean, essentially clinching the game in a lot of instances, right, in the first round mm -hmm. or at least early in the second round once you get that daily double. I, I do think the days are gone of a contestant saying, I'll take potpourri for 200. Yeah. I think the 200, it used to be they would go right down the lines, easiest to hardest. And I know they've bounced around a bunch, but I have a feeling now, from now on, the first guess is always going to be statistically based trying to find that daily double. I think the Mike Tyson comp is not bad, but Mike Tyson, because his run was short-lived, isn't necessarily considered one of the greatest ever. And that's really what Jeopardy! James was, one of the greatest ever. How about the 85 Bears? Now, maybe they didn't have the longevity that, say, a Ken Jennings did, or, say, this Patriots dynasty, or the Steelers dynasty. But for a given moment, they were dominant. And that's what Jeopardy! James did. He has more than 10 of the highest, wealthiest game totals in a daily for Jeopardy! ever. And he has the highest daily total ever. And nearly won as much as Ken Jennings did in half the amount of time. So I think you're looking at a shorter period of thorough dominance and crushing the will of an opponent, kind of like the 85 Bears. But do we have conspiracy here? Some believe Jeopardy! James tanked, took the fall. Here's Sean and RJ on 105.3 The Fan in Dallas. James dominated this game. Okay, if you look at the percentage of questions he got right, like he, he got more right than she did. He got his, he makes his money off daily doubles. He got one daily double. It was the first question of the show, which he had zero. Nobody had any money. So the most you could bet is a thousand bucks because you can't bet when you don't have any money really. Mm. She got two daily doubles. When once when she had nearly eight thousand and she doubled up, she bet it all. And then one when she had twenty. So she got over eleven thousand dollars in daily doubles. James didn't, and that was it. That was the game right there. But James threw the game. I am convinced. Oh, conspiracy theory? He was down 3000 bucks going into Final Jeopardy. He bet $1,399. Even if she got it wrong and didn't bet anything, he still couldn't catch her. Like, he threw it. There, he, his wager didn't even give him enough to get to her original number. Mm. It made no sense. He threw the game. He wanted out for whatever reason. I don't know why. I don't know why. Tired of winning uh, money. He was uh, set at $2.4 I don't know what it is. Maybe he's got a graduation to go to for his kid. Uh, who knows? I think graduations are over. Maybe. But I thought it was pretty um, pretty interesting that you know how they do the interviews with all the contestants yeah. between Midway. Single, whatever it is. After the first round? Yep. Um, It was pretty ironic that he gave Alex 
a get well card that his daughter made. Oh. On the final episode? Hmm. Pretty weird. Pretty weird timing. You mean to tell me in all 30 previous episodes she never made him a card? Call mm, a little BS on this one. Interesting. So Jeopardy James is no more. See you later. Goodbye. And now I want to see what happens to Jeopardy's ratings, whether they drop. They have to drop. And and people are outraged that it was spoiled yesterday. Oh, yes. How did this clip get out there? Roy uh, saw it. We told you about it. And people are not happy. Yeah, um, I was not happy when I saw this. I, I don't know how it gets out there. Someone has to lose their job over this. Well, yeah. no one's going to lose their job. But yeah, I know, probably because it it's increased usually, the ratings. But it's usually some, you know, production assistant, someone that's there behind the scenes that pulls out their little camera phone. They're like, "Oh, I'm going to record this," because that's how the video got out. The video was that of it being shown on a monitor. So that's how it originally got out. So it's probably just some some kid behind the scenes that's like, "Oh, I'm going to get my followers up to 76." Got to go. Fired. See you later. Got to go. Yeah. Gots like, to go. How does this guy think it's okay, or girl, think it's okay to release this? It's not your job to release this. Yeah. So Jeopardy James goes down. Was he crushed afterwards? Did you see No, it? he wasn't that crushed. Alex was crushed. Okay. Now, I recorded this, but I listened back at it. You know how we like to listen to things without seeing it, and you couldn't really tell. But Alex was was choked up a little bit when he was saying really? goodbye to James. Now, I, yeah. I, but again, like, you know, I didn't hear shake voice. And I was just listening to the audio. I'm seeing on Twitter here. Some people say that, yeah, Trebek was emotional. He, he You could tell with the video that he was getting a little bit emotional about it. You know, and Alex is obviously he's dealing with stage four pancreatic cancer. This was you, you could tell those two developed a kind of a, a kinship together. Like Alex really it seemed enjoyed coming as as frustrating as James was because James you know after there's a there's a question answered Alex will give the answer and then kind of an anecdote about it yeah James sometimes would cut him off and go right to the next clue oh and I, I, I don't know like it seemed like Alex and James had developed some kind of a of a little relationship here over the last month or so so it's months. over Oh, say it ain't so. Jeopardy James didn't take a fall here, but that's kind of interesting. There was a quote from one of his family members that was asked about the win and said, well, we consider this a good thing. And I thought, wow, that's a weird thing to say after a loss. So now remember that Jeopardy James can come back and play in the Tournament of Champions. So he's not done forever on Jeopardy. Maybe he was getting burnt out. Maybe he needed a time to reset. And maybe he was now focused on the big winnings and the Tournament of Champions. Wow. In the Stanley Cup final, we've got a 2-2 series as the St. Louis Blues respond from a demoralizing, awful blowout loss 7-2 in game number three. Now, in game four, they end up getting a win. That's their first ever home ice win in Stanley Cup final history. And one of the biggest moments of the night was Zidane Ochara getting hit in the face with a puck. A scary situation and scene considering he's one of the toughest, tallest players ever in NHL history. Here's Dale and Keefe on WEEI in Boston. Let's start with the worst news of the night, which is what the heck is the status for Zidane Ochara oh, going for? Yeah, that I think we found out what the key is, though, for the 
Blues to win a game, Dale, and that is for the Bruins to have five defensemen. I think if they only have five defensemen out there, they have a pretty good shot at it. Because Chara goes down early second period and is out for the he whole second the final, period. 16-57 of the second and all of the third. And so he was sitting out there, which was pretty misleading. Because if you know anything about hockey players, they play. Like, they always, always, always play. You find out after the fact that, oh, this guy had a torn ACL. This guy, you know, lost a rib. This guy had, you know, a severe concussion. Like, they always play. And when he came back out there, and he looked miserable. Like, that look... Like, he looked... He was in... So much pain. Obviously, so much pain. such pain. First of all, terrible sign. Anytime a guy is down on the ice and his gloves aren't on, and that's what we got with him, and he's grabbing at his face, you're like, oh, man. And what a kind of innocuous shot, too. I don't know if that was a shot or a bad pass or what it was, but it went up by the face, hit him square, and he goes down. But then when he comes out and they put the the big cage around his face, I was like, all right, he's going to try to go. And he's one of the few guys that doesn't even have like the like the little right. sh- mini shield or whatever, and so he that'd be probably take him a little bit to get used to. That's even what the announcers were saying. Like, well, now it's going to be a different look for him, but you know he'll get his feet under him. But he never played. He sat on the bench. They they made a note of how you know in between periods or whatever he came out there and uh, or during one of the timeouts and was TV trying to get everybody yeah trying right. to get everybody going. But then he just sat back there on the ice. So that was. That was a, a huge loss for them, and plus having to go with the five defensemen again, and we'll get into it, but Cassidy talked about even you know being late on some of the changes and things like that. They kind of had some issues with that led to some Blues goals. The Bruins right now are missing three of their top six defensemen. Kevin Miller's been out for a while, but he's one of your top six. Matt Grizzlick obviously knocked out earlier in the series by Oscar Sundquist, and now Zdeno Chara out, well, at least for you know two-thirds of last night's game. Right. Going forward, who knows? And it's starting to catch up to him a little bit. But the question I have for Jermaine Wiggins and others like him, you've been saying how the Bruins would look better if Chara didn't play. How did it look to you over the last two periods? Well, that's not fair, night? is it? No. How's that fair? No, no, no. They no, no, had the, five defensemen, Dale. No, no, if you no, had six no, defensemen, point, I think they can win without Chara. You don't? I, I think it's going to be much more difficult. Oh, I think they can win the series still so without Stephen Chara. So Stephen Camfer instead yeah. of Chara, and you're okay? Just a body. Yeah. Just give me somebody else. Just the, the body is, is better than Chara? Than five guys no, having no, to play no. as no, much? I yes, it is. No, Obviously, it's not better, six than, is better Chara, than five. But you can win without Chara. No, but that's the... And I if heard you were doing this If you were ranking the guys on the team, most important... If you lost Tuca, that's probably the most important oh, loss. Oh, yeah, you're if in if you deep lost trouble. Bergeron, that's the, mo- that's the next most important. Marshawn, McAvoy, Carlo. You know, the way he's going, Coyle. Like, all these guys, to me, would rank higher than, than Chara. He's probably somewhere in the middle. Like, if you say he's towards the bottom, that's wrong. But he's not towards the top anymore either. But that's I just the think- point I'm making. For people like Jermaine and others, uh, you know, you're better off if he's not playing. You're be- you're a better team without him. Because remember the game that he missed in the Carolina series. It was, yeah. see, you played better when, when he's not out there. No, you don't play better well, no, when no, he's no, not nobody's, out there. Nobody's saying that. Oh, well, no, the guy's okay, sitting wait, right there. Right, well, he's the one guy saying you're better without him. But I'm just saying you can still win without him. Well, you know it's serious when Zdeno Chara is falling down to the ice, and he is holding his grill, holding his face, and knowing how tough that guy is, if he's not able to play for game five, that means he's really banged up because we know that hockey players in the postseason will play through anything. An amputation, fine, I'm playing through it. That would be a huge loss because realize that if the Blues go on the road in game five and win in Boston, they could come back home to clinch the series in St. Louis in Game 6, which would be their first ever Stanley Cup championship. 
So this is a huge game number five that the Bruins could play without Zdeno Chara. And finally, on the basketball floor in the offseason news, the Houston Rockets never seem to stop having some drama. Daryl Morey wants to trade everybody except for James Harden. Mike D'Antoni and company can't come to some type of contract agreement. There's been thoughts about whether they would fire Mike D'Antoni. And now there's the reports out of Houston that they purposefully lowballed Mike D'Antoni so that they couldn't get a contract done. Here's Houston, Sports Radio 610 and Mad Radio. We've got more details on the deal that the Rockets offered Mike D'Antoni, and it wasn't really much because Mike D'Antoni's agent told the media on Friday, this is after we were all off the air on Friday at 10 o'clock, that if the Rockets had not made the playoffs, not this season, but the following season when the extension kicked in, Mike D'Antoni would have made $2.5 million, right. which is basically nothing. So his his base salary was $2.5 million in this yes. offer, and with an incentive tacked on to this year, I suppose. Um, so Right? Because it was if it was, if he made it, if they made the playoffs this season, it would spark the $5 million for next season. I was kind of confused about the details as, as far as like this season, yeah. the next season. But the, the point, though, is that in 2020-2021, so two years from now, yeah. Mike D'Antoni, if he had gotten fired during the season, would have only made $2.5 million, right. which is way below the which market would, rate. And it would be a dumb contract for him to sign. Because I know over the weekend I got in a lot of arguments with people that, I like. frankly, I, I, just, I think just genuinely don't understand the way things work in the NBA. Because they were saying, well, yeah, it should be incentive-based. Well, that's fine. But this isn't like truly an incentive. For Mike D'Antoni to sign the contract offer that Tillman Fertitta gave him, he would have looked like an absolute moron. Like, it would have been a really dumb extent. It was really just signing on for less control of his own life and destiny and less money. Yep. It wouldn't have made any sense for him to sign that. That's why it it wasn't... It, it's. It was a weird move by Tillman Fertitta. And it, was, and it was even stranger for Tillman Fertitta to come out and be very... I don't want to be overly harsh here. I guess dishonest is the right word, though. He basically... He, he claimed that he had offered a contract that was among the highest base salaries in the NBA, and that's flat out the opposite of what was true. Well, based yeah. on this story, yes. Yeah, that, like it was... And, and this is where... You wonder, like, multiple things there. One, why are you just being so untruthful about something that's so easily found out? Two, why why are you being untruthful to try to one-up or show off, to basically to really embarrass your current head coach in some respects? Or act like, well, he, you know, hey, we made him this great offer and he didn't accept it. You're being dishonest about one of your key employees. And it's strange, because now it's the second time that Tillman Fertitta has really sold one of his key employees down the river. Because when his, in his interview with Jonathan Fagan, he said that it was a fluke that they got under the salary cap this year, which is just flat out almost impossible. Daryl Morey very specifically made moves to get under the salary cap, sacrifice a little bit of your future to get there, and then you act like, oh, it was a fluke. Like that, that makes Daryl Morey look like a clown for the moves that he made if that was just a fluke and an accident. And now you're acting like, oh, yeah, we offered our head coach a really good deal. He turned it down. Well, no, you didn't offer him a league-leading contract. It, it seems like the Rockets offered Mike D'Antoni a deal that they didn't really want. Did, they, they did not expect him to take. Unless right? they thought he was a moron. Yeah. Right. Look, I, mean, I, don't think, I don't think Mike D'Antoni's a moron, so, so I don't think he would have signed that deal. What you have is a team that does not have the guts to fire its coach. Let's make that clear. The Rockets do not have the guts to fire Mike D'Antoni, and they tried to give him an extension which they expected him not to take. 
and then tried to sell it to, every, to everybody, to all you guys getting up on a Monday like they are some sort of vanguard of the NBA and, and basically creating a new paradigm with coaching contracts. Well, they're trying to, they're, they're talking a big game. Tillman Fertitta talks a big game about how, like, hey, it's going to be incentive based and we want guys to prove it and all. That's all well and good, but you're not necessarily operating that way. The Rockets, I think, are caught in an emotional no man's land because nobody wants to fire a guy that has two Coach of the Year honors under him and a number one seed in the Western Conference playoffs and a Chris Paul injury away from an NBA Finals a year ago. But at the same time, they want to shake something up because they've hit a ceiling. And so there is maybe a fear of if we don't do something and we do nothing, we won't go anywhere. But we're not ready to fire the head coach to do something too dramatic because we're pretty good. And because of that, feels like the Rockets are right now caught with one foot in and one foot out. Yep, that'll do it. The best in your sports talk for Tuesday, June the 4th. We'll see you tomorrow, everyone. Thanks for listening to Around the Dial. Subscribe now for the best daily recap in sports talk on Radio.com or the Radio.com app. Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app.